1: One thing that really drew me to today's guest, Shelly, is when I heard her described as Brene Brown with a dash of Liz Gilbert, <laughs> two of my favorite authors, and two women I actually find myself very drawn to as I have shifted a lot in my approach to my online work. Especially Liz Gilbert, She, I think of her a lot when I'm trying to think about what i want to post on a platform like instagram and i often come back to her face which in my viewpoint doesn't have makeup i don't know if she regularly wears makeup i don't think that she does i don't associate her with someone who always has like her clothes you know perfectly curated and her hair perfectly done she comes across as such an authentic unfiltered person and i just admire that in a world where it seems like a lot of online personalities feel like they need to shape themselves into a specific mold. And something I've spoken a lot about recently for my journey, something that a lot of guests seem to align with me on is this desire to color outside the lines, to honor our true selves, to shed the shoulds, to really define what success means for us. And another thing I love about you, Shelly, is this term success full with a dash versus success dash empty. And the success dash empty is that traditional measure of success versus success dash full or successful is life on your own terms. And I think a lot of people right now are trying to figure out what that means, especially women or people that identify as the female gender that feel like success needs to look a certain way for themselves because there's so much tradition tied into gender. There's so much tradition turned, tied into even age and race and location and career. It's like how many of us feel like our lives were meant to follow some sort of formula. And maybe that's a good place for us to start, Shelly, is have you felt pressure to abide by some formula? And if so, how did you start to move away from that, find the confidence to go off script and design things in a way that really feels good for you?
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to thank you. I also love Brene and Liz, and I feel the same way about both of them. I think to me, they're like the gold standard of authenticity and courage and vulnerability. And so you described Liz beautifully, at least the way I don't know her personally, but the way I also see her and experience her. And part of what I always hope I'm channeling, I say that authenticity is the truest form of rebellion, because exactly as you're saying, like, Culture, society, all of our conditioning is wanting to put us in these boxes, like very literally and figuratively in boxes, tick boxes on our gender, tick boxes on our, you know, way to success, quote unquote, all of that. And so, I think it's really beautiful that there are more and more of us who are saying, no, actually, being my authentic self, you know, truly is an act of rebellion. That's how I love to think about it. And to answer your question, yes. This, so, <laughs> I, this is the crux of my entire story. The crux of my story is I spent 26 years in the corporate world. And I was an advertising and marketing executive. I was, you know, I was really good at what I did in that world. And so I kept getting all of this external validation. And my dad had paved this path before me. So (laughs) seeds planted, right? My dad had been this incredible marketing executive. You know, creating characters and commercials that we all would know and love, like the Pillsbury Doughboy and things like that, and went on to become CEO and chairman of many beloved brands and companies. And I fell into that. I found it kind of sexy and it took me around the world. And I loved, you know, so much of my worth and value became attached to these really amazing, iconic brands that I was representing, whether on the agency side or on the client marketing side. So fast forward, I've spent now two decades doing this, being rewarded, being externally validated, ticking all of those boxes because I thought that's what I was supposed to be doing. Or as you said, I call them the shackles of should. (laughs) So that's my version of the language is, you know, the shackles of should for me were like, well, I should stay on the corporate track because, you know, my dad and sunk cost and All of my value and my worth was tied up in these other brands, not in my own brand, not in representing myself and my truth as Shelly Paxton. So fast forward to I make it to the top of the proverbial mountain. I become chief marketing officer of Harley Davidson, which for any marketer is probably one of the sexiest jobs you can have in marketing. And I'm there. I went to Harley at age 40, and I'm rocking it. I mean, who doesn't love the idea that you get to ride motorcycles around the world and represent a brand that people tattoo on their bodies? So for me, I was like, I've made it. I'm here. And then about three or four years into it, I started feeling like, oh, but wait a second. Is this all there is? Like, I've done all the things. I got here. I'm representing this brand that says I'm a badass chick. I've made it. I'm cool. And yet I feel really empty inside. And I'm feeling like I'm kind of dying a little bit inside. And then I start to have this nightmare, this excruciating nightmare. I'm now 45 years old. I've been at Harley for five years. And I have this nightmare that's ripping me out of my sleep. And it probably comes as no surprise that this was my soul and the universe conspiring to go, wake the fuck up. Like you're living someone else's dream. There's a reason why you feel empty inside. And so I'm fast forwarding a bit through the story. We can dig into any piece of this that you want to. But the reality was in that moment, and in some work that I did to really understand what is this dream trying to tell me and why am I feeling this way when all of my life I worked toward this thing that I thought would bring me true joy and fulfillment, joy and fulfillment, and I realized I was living my dad's dream. And that I had totally bought into his and society's definition of success and into this idea of Ticking all of these boxes instead of like, you know, I think about when you said successful versus success empty, like success empty is ticking those boxes, right? It's an external validation and successful is an internal check-in and it's really checking in with ourselves, like getting to know like, what is my truth? And there, I know there's so much richness there that I'm sure we'll dig into. But that was the wake up call for me, and what ultimately sent me on this whole journey called that I called sabbatical, and now this whole idea of you know being a voice in helping others to rewrite their script of success on their own terms. And so, yes, everything you said, just like lands so deeply for me because it is my story. And I know it's so many people's stories.
1: Exactly. I was thinking about that as you were speaking and wondering how many people feel this way, but don't know how to express it. Or maybe they don't even realize it. I think a lot about this at this stage in my life, especially when it comes to parenthood. Are you you a parent, Shelly?
0: I'm not. I'm not.
1: Neither am I, and and I'm also curious if you can relate to this. And without knowing your story about whether you chose to be to not be a mother purposefully, for me it just kind of hasn't happened. You know, I still have biological time if I want to change my mind, and things like adoption are available too. But I've just been thinking a lot about it because I spent so much of my life thinking that I would have kids, and then recently I I thought, why did I think that? It was as if it was predetermined, right? Because for me at least, and I think other women or people with a uterus can relate to this idea of like, well, that's just the way it's going to be, you know? (laughs) Like whether it's a parenting thing, a societal thing, a marketing media, cultural thing, like it's almost odd if you Don't have children by choice, like you, not like your body couldn't do it or there are some other circumstances. It's like, I've just decided not to. And it's especially odd when you still have some time to make that choice. It's not like I've gone past the point of not being able to choose, but I'm still sitting here going, yeah, so far just doesn't feel like a fit for me. And the reason that just feels so intense because it's one of few things in my life that I can look back on and say wow how much of this idea of children was just implanted in me as a should mm. how much of that idea was people telling me that in order to feel successful and fulfilled as a woman that I must have children or even I'm unmarried oh, yeah. and these that idea of like wow like why isn't she married at whatever age and it's like well I, that's definitely a choice you know <laughs> like I've chosen not to marry my the partners that I've been with. And I'm actually very fulfilled and feel very successful in my life despite being unmarried and despite not having children. And what's also interesting, and I would love to hear your thoughts on that too, is how it's almost confusing sometimes. I'm like, wow, do I feel fulfilled? Would I be more fulfilled if I had children? Are my friends feeling more fulfilled than me because society keeps telling me? And also, are they telling me that they're fulfilled because they've been conditioned to feel fulfilled? But like, there's truly no way for us to measure who's more fulfilled than the other, right? There's no way for me to know if I would be more fulfilled with children until I have them. And there's certainly no way for my friends to know, would they feel as fulfilled in their lives right now? Were they not to have kids? So I'm not trying to make this a conversation about children, but to me, it really stands out because it's for men and women, or regardless of gender, a lot of human beings are encouraged to have kids and get married as a major marker of fulfillment. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that personally and observationally.
0: Well, this is a part of my story. So you and I are just meeting and you've you know struck gold in one of my three shoulds. So my three shackles of should that are at the core of my book. And we all have our shoulds. And, you know, just like we, you know, we're meant to define success in our very own personal way, you know, we sort of take on these shoulds in our own personal way, right? Depending upon how we are raised, by whom, you know, religion, culture, all of the things. So my three, I've already said one, I should stay on the corporate track. My second one was I should get married and have kids. And I'll tell you that story in a second. And my third one was I should make personal sacrifices for work because I didn't see my value. I thought if I'm not bending over backwards and letting my boundaries fall and attaching all of my value to what I'm doing for work, which meant all of my time and energy, then I'm going to get fired. They're not going to see my worth. So those were the three biggies. I mean, listen, I've had more shoulds than that in my life, but those were the three that I realized as I was writing my story really had a significant impact on the trajectory of my life, on my behaviors and actions, and on getting me to this moment where I'm like, on the floor, sweating and bawling, seeing this nightmare that I was seeing at age 45 and 46, and then ultimately leaving Harley at age 46. So to answer your question about that second should, that I should have, I should get married and have kids, I was also raised, I was raised in a very nuclear family by very Catholic parents. (laughs) And in a very... The very homogeneous white suburbs of Minneapolis, Minnesota, so let's just say that, you know, we were raised with certain expectations, and everyone around me looked the same and kind of took the same path. and families family structures looked very similar. And I mean, I could go on and on. you get you get the idea. And so, I always felt like, in fact I just posted on my Instagram the other day, I was I was telling you I was in Austin and I found this trucker cap that just says black sheep. And I have always, I say at the beginning of my book, I have always felt like a black sheep because all of these kind of quote unquote cultural norms and expectations, like when I would try them on, they just didn't fit. They didn't feel good. I felt like I was suffocating. And yet, I hadn't seen enough of the world and had enough diverse experiences, you know, culturally and otherwise to understand that I could follow, create, not follow my own path, blaze my own trail or find, you know, mentors and people who were out ahead of me doing their own thing. And it took me many, many, many years in my life to understand that. So on the way to understanding that, I got married. I never thought I was going to, but I ended up, I moved to Istanbul, Turkey for work when I was young, when I was 26 years old in the advertising business. One of the best decisions I've ever made. I mean, it was absolutely incredible experience. Turkey is still very, very deep in my heart, especially Istanbul, as are many of my friends there. And I fell in love with a Turk. And I then ended up marrying that Turk. And we were together for a good 11 years, married for about eight and a half of that. And honestly, the reason we got married is because we left Istanbul to move to New York City. And the easiest way to deal with his visa issues was just to be like, fuck it, let's get married. (laughs) It was like, not romantic. It wasn't a big white dress church wedding. It was barefoot on the beach with the family, whatever. So I did it in my way, but I was like, okay, people get married. Let's do this thing. This is going to be easy. We kind of did it on our terms. And then he really wanted a family. And I was wrestling kind of with exactly what you said. And I ended up actually, let me rewind for a second. When I was 28, we were dating and I was still living in Istanbul. I ended up staying there for four years. And went on a six-month assignment, left four years later, <laughs> and I, I got pregnant. And it was our baby, and we were like, we're 28 years old, and we don't even know if we're committed to each other. And we don't know, I don't even know if I was going to stay in Turkey. And I was living the life of this expat, and I was doing work in Southern Europe and North and South Africa and Middle East and India, and I was living the high life, at least how I was defined in those days. And I couldn't imagine bringing a child into the world under those circumstances, and he was also not ready. You know, little did we know you're never ready to have a child. You're never ready for those. We together made the decision to abort the pregnancy. So I have one abortion and then later one miscarriage to my name. And I have realized that this is the way it was meant to be because it's interesting when you asked me, "I'm so comfortable. i'm fifty two now. I'm not going to be having children." And what I have realized in my journey is that I wasn't meant to have my own biological children. I went, this is fast-forwarding to much more recently within the past few years, with a shaman to the top of a mountain in Baja, Mexico. And he said to me as he was reading my energy, and he repeated back to me, you are all about fertility. And I was like, you don't get me at all. <laughs> like, what is that's ridiculous? Like, you know, he didn't know anything about me or my story, whether I had children, what work I did in the world, nothing. And he said, "Well, let me tell you a little bit about what I mean before you react and or overreact, as the case may be." And he said, "Whether or not you have your own children, what I see." is your fertility, your ideas, and your passion, and the work that you do in the world. He said, whatever your work is, and whatever seeds you are planting, keep doing that. That is your fertility. And those, I went on to later tell him that I'm on this mission to liberate a billion souls and help others rewrite their script of success. And he's like, that's your fertility. Those billion souls are your children and you're guiding them into living their own fulfilling life. And I was just like head to toe sobbing, goosebumps. And so I've come to think about what it means to be a mother in this world and what it means to be maternal And now I see it as so deeply related to my mission and my work in the world. And when I reflected on that as I was writing the book, I was like, that makes perfect sense because the way I saw, like at the peak of my time at Harley, I had 250 people around the world in the global marketing organization, and I viewed every one of them as my children. And when I was leaving Harley the hardest decision I had to make was how am I going to create you know the best possible scenario for all of them to thrive as I exit. And so now it all makes sense. So I don't know how that lands with you, but that's how I think about being a mother now and it lights me up.
1: That is so beautiful and something that I feel like is not spoken about a lot because just because you choose not to bury your own children doesn't mean that you can't be maternal in all these other ways, whether that's to people you work with or your animals or even extended family and friends. You know, as you're sharing that, I'm reflecting on my own versions of motherhood not just to my dog who is the closest i've ever had to a child you've had a
0: fur baby too i totally get it yes
1: right i mean it's beautiful and i don't have that to compare to having my own child I, I i hear a lot of parents say it's unlike any other love that you've experienced which sometimes also feels like a marketing buzzword to be honest because i'm thinking i don't think people are intentionally saying things like that to persuade others to have kids but I've spoken a few times on the show about how I don't feel in alignment with this mentality that having children is for me. I don't think bringing another person into this world is should revolve around me. I feel like that's selfish because it's not taking into account that this is a whole other human being who's going to you know, have their own thoughts and feelings and experience of life that are completely disconnected from me. But... This idea that what if I can support other mothers instead? What if I can support other people who don't have a mother or don't have a good relationship with a mother? Or, you know, I also feel deeply compelled to support my friends that are mothers because I see how much it takes for them to show up in that way. And every time I have a conversation like this, I'm like, wow, like, how can I step up more and be a better? How can I just show up more to support friends and family that have kids? And yeah, better the, ally, and better kids. advocate. Yeah,
0: totally. Yeah. Yes,
1: because I think back on on some of the people that were in my life and are still in my life that feel like mother figures, you know, or even father figures, you know, like just all these other amazing people that I'm not biologically related to that have made a difference in my life. And we can all do that whether or not we have children. And I'm so glad that you brought that up because I just don't know if that's discussed that much. And we look at the bandwidth, which I'd love to use as a, a pivot point beyond parenthood. But as a starting point with bandwidth, that's one thing I really note about mothers and in my reflections on whether or not I wanna have children, I wonder, do I want to spend my bandwidth on a biological child or do I wanna use that bandwidth for a different purpose? Because as much as our society likes to talk about women who can do it all and have it all and be great partners, be great mothers, be great with their work, I imagine with your experience in the corporate environment, Uh, You see how demanding a job like that is. And I grew up with my mother working in a a really intense corporate job. And like, she's going to be gone all day long and then stretch thin in terms of bandwidth when she returns home. Even when my mother chose to leave the corporate world as you did, Shelley, she still in many ways had limited bandwidth to take care of herself and her passions to have a good relationship with my father and a good relationship with me and my sister, you know, like I could see the ways in which there weren't always going to be times where she could give me her full attention because her bandwidth just wasn't there. And I see this in friends that have young children who they can barely show up for me as a friend, let alone do any work for themselves. And I kind of come to this realization recently. I'm like, wow, It almost feels like a bit of a lie that I was sold as a woman that you could do it all. Because knowing myself, at least, if I had kids, like I probably wouldn't be able to do most of the things that I'm doing right now without children. I'm I'm curious if you felt that way or experienced that yourself.
0: Yeah. I mean, my view on this is that, you know, I don't think it's an either or, right? Do I think that we can really step into our full power and our mission and whatever work we're meant to do in the world and have children? Absolutely. Do I think we can have it all and do it all all at the same time? Absolutely not. So that's how I agree with you. I think there is sort of the myth of the superwoman. And I was just listening to Lisa Ling uh, talk yesterday to the chief organization. And, you know, she was just saying, you know, it's, there was an acknowledgement that, like, especially as moms and working women, she was like, we're exhausted. We're exhausted. And it's okay to realize that, you know what, not not everything's going to be in, harmon- uh, in harmony or firing on all cylinders at the same time. We don't have to do it all and be it all at the same time. We're going to need to ask for help. There is strength in asking for help, not weakness. That is one of the biggest lessons I learned in this whole journey and in my decision to leave Harley, because I was pretending for so long. I'm like, I got it. I got it all together. Like, very masculine energy. Like, you know, I'm all polished and I'll put on the heels and the fancy jewelry and, you know, I'll look all, you know, I would say spit polished to a shine. So you didn't know how just, you know, really what a hot mess I was on the inside and how I was—I didn't know and I couldn't figure it out. And I was very afraid to be vulnerable and to ask for help. And so this is my version. Obviously, I'm speaking my own personal experiences as a working woman without children. And I'm not making comparisons, but I think there is this beautiful idea that you know one asking for help is a strength not a weakness may more of us embrace that and support each other in that decision also self first isn't selfish the the moms i know in my world who are thriving the most are the ones who when they thought they couldn't do it are taking an hour or two to themselves every single day. I have a friend right now. Her book is soon to come out. She has been doing this for two years now, taking two hours. She has two very young kids, and both she and her husband are entrepreneurs who work a lot. And it fundamentally changed her life. To Her name is Peyton Hughes. And so anybody follow her. She talks a lot about boundaries, about her experience, as a mom, about what it meant to create that space and how it radically improved her relationship with self, with her husband, with her children, her work. It, complete, it changed her life in every way. And so it's funny, I had somebody say to me when I first started learning about the concept of meditation, if you say you can't make 10 minutes, you probably need three hours right? And so I think it's the same. It's a very similar concept here. Like if we say we can't make 30 minutes or an hour or two hours for ourselves to care for ourselves so that we have the energy for our families and our teams, the things we're most passionate about in the world, then we're doing ourselves a disservice right? We, I say flip the script. And so I'm super passionate in the corporate world about flipping the script on this idea that time off is like a reward for hard work. I'm like, fuck that. Time off is a prerequisite for showing up as your, you know, as your most powerful, creative, innovative, productive, compassionate, kind self. And I'm translating that more and more into, to me, that's a key ingredient of how I think about success. Success, full for me, can't and won't ever happen if I am not creating some space for myself. And listen, I'm as human as you and everybody else listening to this podcast. So some days I do it really well and some days I'm total shit at it, right? Like It ebbs and it flows. And that's okay too. Like, give yourself grace, go gently, be, you know, we're so compassionate, especially as women, we're so compassionate with others and we're so mean to ourselves. So this is something I've been working on, but the most generous, kind, compassionate thing we can do is to say, you know what? It's not selfish for me to put me at the top of my to-do list and not let it fall off every day as it so often does. And it's something I've had to learn to say, if I really want to show up in as my most badass, powerful self on this mission to liberate a billion souls and be as maternal as I want to be to others on that journey, well, I damn well better be fueled up and better create that space for myself. So, I invite, you know, mothers to do the same. I'm seeing other mothers say, "No, you know what? I am not going to be burnt out and fried to a crisp and try to take on everything. I am going to create that space and really set those boundaries and stick to them." And man, this is our life's work as women because we were not taught this or conditioned in this way.
1: Yes. And going back to what you said about this myth of the superwoman. I mean, again, I I don't want to make it too much of a gender issue because I know men have so many myths that they feel like they have to live up to. And then people that are non-binary and all these gender related things that feel so confusing for people right now. And if we could just like let go. In fact, that's something as I learn more about what non-binary means is this idea of just like not adhering to these gender norms like that actually sounds so free. Part of me is like, wow, maybe I want to mm-hmm. be non-binary because it's it feels so nice to be fluid and just say like I'm just a human being. I'm not my gender I'm not I'm not limited to the ideas of my gender. I'm not limited based on what I look like and how I present myself like, I think that even as a woman, you touched upon this too, Shelley, You know, there are times where I actually feel like that masculinity is so interesting and confusing too, because there are parts of me that feel like they fit into this feminine box where, you know, maybe I present as very feminine because I'm choosing to wear makeup and do my hair. But it's also kind of frustrating that if I don't present myself in those ways, that suddenly what I'm not feminine you know, like a big thing for me, I'd love to hear you touch upon even, we could probably talk so much in depth about things like gray hair, you know, like I've been to growing a lot of gray hairs over the last few years. I'm currently choosing not to dye it. And there are these moments of like, am I, do I, people perceive me as less attractive because women are taught that they have to dye their hair and they have to wear makeup and they have to dress a certain way. And like, There's the constant every single day I feel pressure about how I present as a woman and I despise that, you know, because men, you know, can very comfortably, it seems, have gray hair, can very comfortably not wear makeup, can very comfortably wear whatever they want in clothing. Like, that's incredibly frustrating. So it's exciting if we can move away from those gender norms and all of these myths around them. So I'll pause there because there's a lot more to say, but I'm curious like how you feel about the pressures to present in a way that aligns with your gender. And how do you feel about this movement to be more fluid or non-binary?
0: Yeah, I love, I love what you said. I mean, it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, right? Like all the boxes, that the world wants to put us in. And there is so, I feel liberated. From the second I decided, I'm like, authenticity is the truest form of rebellion. I am on this journey of living a life that's more authentic, more courageous, and more purposeful. Like that's what a successful life means to me. And so everything I do, listen, I'm always, I've been a woman who have largely been in masculine dominated industries. So I was, I learned from an early age in my career in particular that, you know, success equals like really leading with more of that masculine energy than embracing my feminine energy. And I don't, I don't, for me, it's like, I know I have both and I know I want both and need both. And the beauty of how I show up in the world is that blend. And I'm leaning so much more into my feminine energy because I understand like, oh, this, this is the maternal that's bringing this mission to bear. My feminine energy is wild and free and vulnerable and compassionate and I knew I had a lot of this. Even at Harley, I would get comments like, oh, you're such a different kind of female leader. We love you. We love you. We're learning from you. And I didn't really understand it at the time. I'm like, I'm just being me. And what I understand so clearly now in the rearview mirror is I was showing up and bringing some of my feminine energy to bear, but in limited ways. But even in those limited ways, people were like, Oh, we're craving more of that. Show us more of like that vulnerability and your humanity and your soul, and like don't feel like you have to, you know, everything has to be so, um, you know, perfect and performance and all of that. So I'm leaning into that. I'm a woman who has always been more comfortable in jeans and a leather jacket and boots. So I am not a frilly-dressed girl, but I do. I mean, I present feminine. I've had people comment to me when I was at Harley, wow, you're so feminine. We didn't expect that, which I'll be honest, like I get super taken aback by comments like that because I'm just like, what does that even mean? I'm me, right? The choices I'm making, the way I dress for me has become less of how does, society and culture or any given company or brand expect me to dress, Harley was the moment where I was like, I'm a badass. I'm reclaiming my badassery. And this gives me the excuse to show up wearing exactly what I want to wear, right? I want to show up in a boardroom with my nose pierced, which I have, with you know, with my leather jackets, my skinny jeans, and my boots. And I'm in my happy place and like my big jewelry and whatever. And ever since then, this is how I rock. I mean, I'm just like, but I I do dye my hair. I will tell you very honestly, that was a really hard moment for me during lockdown where the grays and I have significant grays at 52. I was like, oh my God, I can't bear this. And I wasn't ready because I see it so clearly now. I make a choice to dye my hair. And the reason I do is because I dyed my hair red. So for those who can't see me, I'm like a redhead with a little bit of blonde in it. I dyed my hair red. I was always a brunette with like auburn, natural auburn highlights. After my divorce, which is now almost 13 years ago, I w- I kind of created my post divorce, like bring back the badass, reconnect with who I am. And I became a redhead. And it's been a big part of my identity ever since. So this is a choice I make. Now, I applaud. I will say I applaud. I have friends who are doing it. I applaud when I see beautiful women growing their gray hair out and owning it. I applaud it. I'm simply not ready to part with that part of my identity. My hair, more specifically, the color of my hair, has become so much about my statement of authenticity in this world because, you know, in a world of, like, a lot of blondes and brunettes, I love being the standout redhead. I love being bold, brave, and badass in every way that I can be. So... That's my position on that. But it's a choice, right? So it is a choice. So I've really been leaning into my feminine energy and what that's been bringing to my leadership and my work. But yeah, I am not, you're never going to see me in pink or a flowery dress. I can commit to that for the rest of my life. (laughs) But you will see me in some pretty, you know, fun and funky clothes and always with like my jewelry and my hair done.
1: (laughs) It's so fascinating how, you know, this idea of our identity being so tied to our appearance. Like that's something that I find myself thinking a lot about because it's like, I can see it from both sides. I'm like, first of all, like freedom of expression is amazing. Like we should all have that option to have freedom of expression. But simultaneously, I would like to see less judgment around our appearance and like assumptions about what that means to your point, because just because you walk into a corporate boardroom dressed a certain way says nothing about your ability to achieve whatever goal of that meeting is, you know, like, Amen th- th- to that. This, <laughs> and that's the, th- you can see it from both sides because we've spent, I mean, I think it's just natural. We're conditioned plus historically as human beings, appearance of anything is as a survival mechanism. We're we're making assumptions to determine, are we safe here? Is, is this person trustworthy? Are they going to help me with something? But I think we've also become, we've gotten so far away from basics of that humanity, that now it's become very confusing. And so I'm hoping that we're moving to a time with all this more gender fluidity or lack of gender at all. Could we move to a point where it's just like we're seeing the humanity in one another, not making all these preconceived notions? Because for me, I've been breaking out of that so much over the last few years I used to feel so concerned about my gray hairs, you know, and and similarly during the pandemic, I would, I would feel at the, at the beginning of the pandemic, like I would notice my gray hair all the time. And then I like moved away from it because I wasn't around other people as much. So I mm-hmm. stopped looking in the mirror as much because I didn't feel like I needed to. And then it was like this aha moment of, wow, I'm looking in the mirror to determine how Other people may perceive me. I'm looking in the mirror to say, like, do I look okay today? And will I get the approval? Also back to one of your points earlier, Shelley, this external approval. And I found myself only concerned about my appearance when it was in the context of how other people viewed me. Because if I'm not taking in the possible perceptions others may have of me, then I feel more free And I don't feel the need to look in the mirror. I don't feel the need to look at photos of myself or even take them. I don't feel the need to uh, scrutinize myself on camera. You know, I choose to make videos for this podcast, for instance. I could sit there all day long and tear myself apart, but then realize, wait a second, all of those critical things I'm thinking about myself have nothing to do with me. They're been conditioned into me based on me trying to get approval from others. So what happens if I let go of that and just show up in my comfortable state? To your point, Shelley, I'm not a jeans girl. I'm a big fan of any type of stretchy clothes. So actually, stretchy jeans, love them. Those are the only jeans that I feel really good in.
0: (laughs) I'm wearing leggings right now, girl. Like i so... Honestly, I'm like, I am embracing more and more like, and it's not, I do, I wear jeans with stretch in them. I wear comfortable jeans that like fit me well and feel good on me. Like I am not trying, this is actually, it just made me think as you were talking My big struggle. I mean, if you want to talk about getting super vulnerable and one of my areas of personal struggle that I know will play into my work some way in the world, and it may simply be talking about it and in these really, you know, beautiful, brave forums like you've created on your podcast. Mine is about bigness. So the acceptance of the fact that I am a big personality. I am also not a small woman. I've always been like, I grew up swimming and the minute like my big boobs started to show up and all the things I was like, oh fuck, okay, well apparently I'm not a swimmer anymore and now I gotta figure out all this stuff. And I realized that for most of my life, since puberty, I've never been comfortable my body. I think I've been shaming myself for all the reasons that you just pointed out. So for me, it's definitely been about like, oh my God, people are going to see me as like, you know, larger than average or curvier than average. It's like, well, what is average and why am I trying to fit into this thing called average? I don't want to be average, but it took me a long time to have the courage to own that like my bigness in terms of my passion and my personality and the curves of my body and my success in the world. And I mean, I could go on and on. Like I have finally made peace with all of that. But this is, I think it's probably my forever journey. I'm closer to peace than I've ever been. I am working on it every day. And you reminded me that I wrote this poem. I actually just pulled up my phone because it's, it's on my phone. I did some work. Um uh, there's a guy by the name of John Weinland who does uh, beautiful work with in masculine feminine spiritual intimacy so many cool just a lot of cool practices and we got off of a I did like a weekend intensive with him during the during covid and at the end we each had to perform a piece that was sort of represented like either our breakthroughs or the experience we had or like how we're moving forward in the world. And I wrote a poem called Bigness. And it was such a turning point for me in my life. So this wasn't that long ago. This was like the total lockdown days 2020 of COVID. And I wonder if it would help to read this now because I sort of feel like This might really resonate with others because I know so many of us as women, it's like we're told we're taking up too much space and that we're too much. And I'm like calling bullshit on that whole thing in the same way that you're calling bullshit on like, don't call me out like masculine, feminine, certain traits, certain expectations. Like, let me be me and learn about me and dive into me and understand it. And so this was my turning point and really appreciating my big, beautiful, wild, feminine self. And so I wrote this. It's fairly short. I was always too big for you. Yes, you. Every man in my life, every husband, boyfriend, and potential suitor. Too intense, too successful, too curvy, too bold, too smart, too independent, too charismatic, too much. Too much like the wild swells of the ocean, like the raging winds of a monsoon, like the scorching rays of the desert sun. You told me I was a force of nature, too big in every way, and I believed you. I felt crushed and ashamed and misunderstood and unlovable, alone, aching, too big for love, until now. Now I understand that big is beautiful— That the vast expansiveness of the divine feminine is powerful. The movement, the energy, the beauty, the expression, the emotion, the leadership, the force that nature intended. Now I choose to show up as she who must be loved in her bigness and ravished in her wild feminine. Look out, world.
1: Wow. How does it feel to share that again? Have you read that out loud before?
0: I have only read it out loud two other times that I can remember. Yeah. So not a lot, you know, since 2020. So probably in two years, I've read that out loud now, like three times, max four. Yeah. It feels amazing. Like to me, it's so energizing. It's become a cornerstone. There's a reason I keep it on my phone. It is a cornerstone for me. And that's maybe, you know, a a gift or an insight for anybody listening to this podcast is like, what can be your cornerstone where you, t- you know, that you just go back to and it grounds you in your own authenticity, in your own bigness, in your own brave, you know, courageous journey? Like, that's so beautiful because that fuels my energy when I read it. And it reminds me like, no one can try to put me in this little box. Like, no one. It is my choice not to live in that box or any other box. And it's also my choice to unlock the shackles of should to not create my own box, <laughs> right? Which so many of us often do. Like we create our own boxes and our own prisons. And so this is an ongoing journey, but this is so much of what I've experienced. I left Harley five and a half years ago. So I've been on this journey for five and a half years and I'm constantly having breakthroughs. And that bigness, that bigness moment was such a breakthrough for me. Or it's like, no, I'm not gonna shrink in the corner or try to fit into the size four jeans, or you know, ta- <laughs> whatever it is, contort my way into some box I don't belong in. So it feels liberating and, and it has become so foundational to my own definition of successful, because I've committed to myself to live, you know, my values are freedom, authenticity, and courage. And I believe that living successful is truly, right? You know, it's like courageously and intentionally defining success on your terms and in a way that's in alignment with your truth and your values and your dreams. And so bigness has become a part of that and owning my bigness on stage, owning my bigness in this conversation, owning my bigness in the world. And, you know, like I just ask everybody, like, what's your version of that that you want to own that like just to like explode out of that box or those boxes that people are trying to put you in? Oh, it feels so good. It is liberating.
1: It really is. I mean, I'm so glad you're sharing all of that because it's liberating just to hear you. I mean, your, your poem is wonderful and I can relate to so much of that as well. I feel like many, if not all women, and again, I keep trying to move away from the gender side of it because it just goes beyond that. You know, as somebody who has identified as woman as a woman and just trying to find my place with the gender, that's also been a big Journey too. And now I'm like, wow, maybe I don't even identify as a woman after all. You know, like I've just been conditioned to believe that. But as you're talking about these yeah. ideas of big and small, I keep reflecting on physically how much pressure I felt and struggled with my body and feeling comfortable in it. And feeling so much shame when I don't fit into certain clothing, feeling shame when I see photos of myself where I perceive myself to be big and then become terrified of. Well, maybe people don't perceive me as beautiful or powerful or, or mm-hmm. important because of my body. Like, what an awful feeling m- many of us have lived with. Like, that is just horrifying how many people have felt unworthy because of their body and frustrated because they've spent so much time trying to control it. It actually. A visual came up for me as you were talking, uh, and, and maybe during your poem too, Shelley, the movie Turning Red, the Disney movie. Have you seen that about this gr- little I girl in the it. panda? I really encourage it through the lens of what you just shared, because I think the movie has a lot of cultural significance. It has a theme of anger and a, the story of a relationship with the mother. But it also represents to me this idea of not having to control yourself all the time because mm. the movie is about this little girl who has was born with something that she inherited from her family and is trying to control it. And it feels, quote, out of control. And the whole story is about how her mother taught her to control it and her mother taught her to control it. And it's like being passed down. You got to control yourself, even though this is naturally within you, even though... It, or it's been passed down through your family. So you technically don't have control over something. I want you to force control over it in yeah. order to adhere to the cultural norms of what we believe is proper. You know, is this is the right way to do this. And again, it, it does come down to success, Shelley. Like all of your work is like, how can I be successful And we've been told over and over again, in order to be successful, we have to control ourselves. And control could be either hiding things about ourselves, squeezing ourselves into spots, trying to reshape ourselves physically, trying to, you know, for me, like my new journey is realizing my neurodivergence and how I've had to like control my brain my whole life. And that ties into one thing I want to make sure we touch upon before wrap up, which is burnout. And Mm -hmm. clearly we could talk on and on about that. But do you feel, as I believe, that burnout is often the result of us trying to control too much in ways that like maybe as I've recently described it, it's like trying to force us into a shape that we just cannot hold you know, like this idea of like, you're just too big to be contained in this small space. So yeah, maybe temporarily you can shove yourself in there, but at a certain point, you're going to burst out of the seams because you literally cannot fit in whatever shape you're being forced to fit in. And that is so stressful. So of course you're going to feel burnt out. And also coming back around to the superwoman and superman thing that you mentioned too, like, if we're told over and over again you have to do it all but we cannot do it all of course we're going to get burnt out because we're trying to do something that we can't actually do
0: yeah i mean i think oof, i can relate to all of that and i think burnout is a is a combination of so many i mean it's it's like a molotov cocktail of ingredients right it's the things you mentioned And it's like my third shackle of should that I mentioned, you know, I should make personal sacrifices for my work or they're not going to find me worthy or valuable, you know, enough to be in this job. Right. It wasn't like it was like my work couldn't speak for itself. I felt like if I didn't go the extra mile or the extra hundred miles. And do all the things and bend over backwards and please everyone that for some reason, me showing up and doing my work in a really phenomenal way wasn't enough. Like I wasn't enough unless I was contorting, unless I was, you know, letting all of my boundaries fall. So, you know, I'm a fan of saying boundaries over burnout because I think so often you know, we haven't talked about it, but a piece of burnout and a piece of, you know, some of these gender expectations is people pleasing. How many of us, especially as women, have been conditioned to please our parents, to please authority figures, to please, you know, the church or the cultural circles we were raised in and, you know, to not ruffle feathers, to not, you know, choose ourselves to, you know, I mean, to the point where I have a lot of friends who didn't come out of the closet until very late in life, right? When it was quote unquote, more acceptable because they were raised in a way that where that was like, it just wasn't possible, Which is, you know, also just like makes my blood boil. So I think so much of that, you know, there's a stat that I often use in in my work and my talks that 85% of Americans have experienced burnout. And a lot of that like came from COVID and work from home and trying to wear all these hats in one small space and, you know, juggle so many things. And, so, yeah, I think boundaries, I think creating space, I think burnout kind of ties together so many of the themes we've been talking about, right? Because those shackles, right? Shackling myself to the idea that I need to be small, shackling myself to the idea that I have to fit into some box or some predetermined set of boxes, shackling myself to somebody else's definition of success you know, shackling myself to pleasing others, right? Like, to me, it's such a crime, this idea of like, I would, I just can't imagine disappointing others. I'd rather disappoint myself. It's like, no, absolutely not. Let's flip that script as well. I am now living a life where I will absolutely disappoint others over disappointing myself. Because the other way around leads to burnout or contributes to burnout, I should say, right? Self-care and not caring for ourselves and putting ourselves on our own to-do list at the top of it and creating space and fueling ourselves, that leads to or contributes to burnout. I mean, so many of these things I feel like we could go through, it's like this is the through line To the entire conversation, and it's only gotten worse. And to your point about control, I mean, this is something I am so clearly impassioned about about all of this work and this conversation, and even more passionate than I was pre-COVID. So my book came out in January of 2020, eight weeks before the world shut down. So I was super passionate about this before what we what we've experienced for the past two and a half years. I am now incredibly passionate because the way I see the world is like 2020 was the year that shook us, right? If you didn't already have that, like, you know, universal two by four that whacked you with tragedy or illness or losing your job or, you know, the other kinds of things that wake us up from our slumber of autopilot or living our lives on autopilot, then COVID probably shook you up. And reminded you that you have no control. Like the only thing that's certain is uncertainty. We have like all control we had was perceived, right? White knuckling the steering wheel of life ain't going to get us anywhere. So 2020 was the year that shook us. 2021 was the year of the awakening, right? It was the year that where we all went, oh my god, right? Like there was so much wrong with what many people call the old normal, and it crystallized what mattered most for us. And so I'm calling 2020 and 2022 and beyond the year of the the year or years of the revolution where we are all going to create our most authentic, courageous, and purposeful life, where we are going to choose successful and not success empty, because we're forced to let go of this control. And believe me, trust and surrender is the lesson I will have to learn again and again and again until my dying day. Um, so it's probably why I'm so passionate about it. We teach what we most need to learn, we write the book we most need to read, right? And so that's what I do. But learning to let go, I just, I think we've all gotten like yet another wake up call to just, you know, the universe shaking us by our lapel saying, you know, how do you get to, how do you want to live the rest of your life? I don't know if you're familiar with Bronnie Ware. She wrote the top regrets of the dying so she was a palliative care nurse, I believe in Australia. Her book is called The Top Regrets of the Dying. And the number one regret of the dying of like the hundreds of patients she sat bedside with on their deathbed was I lived the life someone else expected of me, not the life I truly wanted. I didn't have the courage to live that life. Like, Let's not be those people. We just got the biggest wake-up call of our lives. And I feel like I keep getting these awful messages of young people dying left, right, and center. I've lost two friends in the past three months. And So, I'm like, it's time, right? This is our wake up call to truly live life on our terms and create it, you know, in alignment with our soul and our values and our truth. And so, yeah, it's all of those things. And I think the more we live like that, the more we get at the mental health crisis, the more we get at the burnout epidemic, the more we get at these things that are just eating away at our society today, especially in the U.S.
1: I couldn't agree more. And that's why your work is so important. So speaking of your work, you have this wonderful book, Solbatical, uh, and I will link to this in the show notes along with everything that we talked about today, any resources, all your wonderful friend that you shouted out, I mean, you mentioned so many great things. I want to make it really easy for the listener to find it all, which is at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com in the show notes section. There's a full transcript. There'll be a video. I love Shelly's whole presentation, your books and your microphone. Like, the color scheme is so great. So when that video oh, comes out on YouTube, me.
0: <laughs> yes, I love orange that my color. The burnt
1: orange and the greens. It's just like so visually stimulating for me. But you also have a podcast too where you talk about that so that as somebody who might want to go immediately to learn more about you, like yeah. they could jump into another podcast right away. What is it?
0: Oh, thank you. It's called Rebel Souls. So it's all the things I talked about. I say if you want to flip the middle finger to the status quo in your life, business, or the world at large, then you're in the right place. And so it's all of these things that we're talking about. It's so aligned with your work, Whitney, and like the beautiful conversations that you host. And so Rebel Souls, you can find it anywhere where you listen to your podcast. I'm on a brief hiatus, but there's probably 85 episodes that you can binge should you choose to, and I will be back. Yeah, you can find my book anywhere you buy your books. And I'm working, I don't know if you and I talked about this, but I'm working on book number two right now, and it is called Successful, F-U-L-L. And it's this whole conversation about, you know, why so many of us are shackling ourselves to this generation's old kind of (laughs) patriarchy-led definition of success and how people are rewriting it, getting inspired, how you can do it for yourself, and a bit of my own messy story through that journey. So look out for that as
1: well. Fantastic. Another very much needed topic for us. And thank you so much for diving into so many things and being vulnerable and honest and inspiring. And I mean, it got me thinking my brain went to places that it's may have never gone before. Honestly, a lot of the things I felt like little aha moments as you were speaking. I'm like, wow, like <laughs> this is like the joy that I feel for a guest like you, yeah. Shelly. So thank you for sharing that with me and with the listener. And again, for the listener, everything's in one place at wellevator.com for you. Also in the description of this episode, you can quickly click on some links there to jump over to Shelly's podcast. I hope that you do so that you can continue along with her journey, find out when her book comes out. Check out her existing book. And Shelly, can't wait to see it all unfold for you. Thank you again. Oh,
0: thank you so much for inviting me. I love this conversation.